Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. If you are unfamiliar with your Bibles, uh, you probably are familiar with the English language. And so when you hear Genesis, you typically think of beginnings. Well, Genesis is the beginning of, your, of the Bible. So the very first book, open it up, you probably get a table of contents and some introductory material, but then right after that, it's probably on page one after you get past all the Roman numerals, and uh, you'll see the book of Genesis there, Genesis chapter one. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right, Genesis chapter one, hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... We'll hold off there. Why don't you look at chapter 2 now? Chapter 2. And in chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day, from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And now let's pray that God would give us insight and instruction, that we would hear and heed this great message. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need your help. For many of us, this is a familiar passage, and, and yet, even though it is a familiar one, it is one that we still need to hear over and over and over again. So much hangs on these couple of chapters here. In fact, not much left of the Bible would make sense if this is not how the story begins. So teach us, Lord. Help us to, uh, to feel and sense the bedrock that you have laid out for us. And not just for us, but for all of your creation. You are at work. You are on the move. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see you and that we would love the one that we see. Lord, there are some that are here whose lives are not built on these truths. They have not come to know you through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that they would hear uh, the, the foundation, the solid rock on which they can stand. And may they recognize that right now what they think is sturdy and stable is, in fact, sinking sand. Lord, may they turn from, their, from the false ideologies of the day. May they turn from the false idolatries, the false gods of this age, 
And I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you, the only God, who is infinitely good and infinitely great and amazingly gracious. We thank you for all of these things, Lord. We know that that is a miracle. And so we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would indeed work miracles among us today. We thank you and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, how do you begin a story matters? How you begin a story matters. Beginnings matter, right? We have a particular child in the family. We won't uh, call this particular child out. Uh, but there is a particular child in the family who loves to tell stories. And in many ways, when this particular family member tells stories, it leaves a lot of us in the family going, what are you talking about? Have you ever had that? Maybe you have one in the family like that, where the story is going and you're just kind of going, I have no idea where this thing is going. There, there is no driver to this bus. It is, it is just, it's just going like, like speed, 55 miles an hour down the highway. And, and some of y'all are too young for that. And, um, and, and, and I'm just like, what is, what is happening here? How you begin a story matters. Uh, the, it sets the trajectory for the rest of the story. Uh, once upon a time, there was a, a young girl who had a loving father and a loving mother, but, but then the mother died and the father remarried, and he just happened to marry this very, very evil stepmother uh, who had three daughters of her own. And uh, her uh, stepmom and her wicked stepsisters, they just harassed her and everything. What story am I talking about here? This is the story of Cinderella, yeah. And, and as you go, you, you have these expectations for where the story is going to go, right? Uh, something must happen to overcome the conflicts of the evil stepmom and the evil stepsisters and everything so that she can find love and, and she can be in a place where she is loved and treasured and valued and all of that and live happily ever after. And of course, we know that the story says that where she can find such love and treasure and all of that is in the arms of strappingly handsome Prince Charming, right? Uh, and so that's how the story goes. It sets the trajectory for where we should go. Uh, one of my favorite movies, Black Panther, it begins with an origin story. And in the origin story, there's a father who's talking to the son and he's laying out the history of Wakanda, right? And he says that we have all these resources in vibranium, uh, this, this, this infinitely useful uh, uh, resource that, that is only found in Wakanda. And, and we've got this and all of that. And so the, the son asks something to the effect of, so we're able to, uh, to, to, to deal with all the world's problems and, 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 and all of that. And, and he says, yes. And he says, uh, and, and, and yet we're still hiding, right? And, and the dad says, yes. And then the kid asks, why? And that sets the trajectory for the rest of the story right? Why are they still hiding? Why are they hiding themselves? Why are they hiding their resources? If they have the opportunity to help the world, if they have the opportunity to, uh, to care for the needs of other people, why in the world are we hoarding this to ourselves? Fascinating question for a fascinating movie. You should go see it sometime if you haven't already. You should have seen it already. I don't know why you haven't seen it already. 
but, but it's a great uh, uh, thing. How you begin a story matters. How you begin your story matters. There's a whole uh, uh, field of psychology that talks about personal narratives and, and how you tell your story matters. Who you are and, and where you came from. And, 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 you know, we have all of these memories that we have, but there's certain memories that are just kind of anchors in our mind, right? Uh, Y'all have heard me tell the story of when I was, uh, when I was younger, Going into first grade, I had a group of friends, Jason, Andy, and several others, and we would talk, it was the 80s, and so we'd talk G.I. Joe, and we'd talk Transformers, and Thundercats, and all the goats of the, of the cartoon world. Um, uh, it's been completely downhill uh, since then, but, but back in those days, you know, we were just, we were raised by royalty, and, and you know, and we're watching the greatest cartoons ever conceived by man. And, and, and we're, we were talking all that stuff in first grade, but then uh, somewhere between first grade and second grade, they found out that I was the black kid living in Southern Maryland, you know, uh, where I was the only black kid in the class. I was probably the only black kid in the school, you know, uh, uh, just knowing how life was down there in Southern Maryland at, uh, back in the day. And so they started to pick up on that and they learned some vocabulary over the summer and that's the first time when I was called certain names that I was called in second grade at seven years old, not having a clue what it meant. All I knew was they didn't want to want to uh, pick me on their soccer team when in recess and they, they kind of blackballed me and I'm over here on the corner while they're all playing and I, and I realized that I didn't have any friends and I don't know what's going on and I don't know what to do with my life. And my folks picked me up from there and mortified and, and obviously uh, didn't want me in that school. They put me in an all-black school. We were going to a predominantly black church, and they had a Christian school. And we were in there, except I'm from the sticks. I'm from Mechanicsville, Maryland. And this school was right outside of Washington, D.C. And so here I am in this, uh, in this uh, school and, and all of that, and now I've got a totally different problem. I don't fit in with the folks that have the same skin color as me. I don't have the same references. I don't live life. I didn't grow up in the city and all of that. I'm out in the country and everything. And so I, at seven, uh, seven eight years old, am having this internal conflict that I didn't know how to articulate at eight years old. But I'm over here trying to figure out, I don't really fit in over here because I'm too black. I don't fit over here because I'm not black enough. Where do I belong? How you begin your story matters. You see? That set the trajectory for the rest of my life. Those are questions that I've been asking for years and years and years ever since then. You may have stuff like that too. Uh, you may have grown up and everything was fine and then one of your parents uh, left, your, your folks divorced. And that, and that rocked you, and that kind of set the trajectory for your story. Or you grew up with hardworking folks, and they just taught you this work ethic, and maybe that's all they talked about was work, and all they talked about was, was, uh, uh, was working hard and everything, and that became kind of the ultimate value, what you do and everything. And so now the trajectory of your life is, I've got to make something of myself. I've got to have a good job with good pay and good resources and all of that, good insurance and everything, because I'm nothing if I don't have that. How you begin your story matters. You're all picking up on the point here. How you begin your story matters. How you begin the story matters. And if your story doesn't line up with the story, 
then perhaps you should hear the truth. There's a true story that's being unfolded here in the scriptures. Your story is a part of this story. Yeah. You belong here. In fact, you currently, as we speak, live in this story. How do I know that? Because it's the only one that exists. <laughs> There's only one true story. And all of us have a place in this story. All of us belong here. And if that's the case, then all of our stories start right here in Genesis. We're going to begin a series this morning as we walk through the first five books of the Bible. We're not going to walk through all five today, trust me. Um, I don't know if we're going to walk through all that we're supposed to walk through this morning. It's a big chunk, but we're going to uh, at least begin telling the story. The first five books of the Bible, uh, if you were in uh, a Jewish culture and so on, they would call it Torah. Torah is the word. We typically translate it uh, law, uh, but it's more than law. In fact, Torah begins right here in Genesis 1, and there are no laws in Genesis 1. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a set of instructions, if you will, that is couched in a story, the story of everything, the story of the world, the true story. And you find your place in there. We learn from this. That's really what Torah is meant to do. It's meant to teach us. It's meant to instruct us. It's meant to show us the way. Your Bible begins this way. Our lives begin here. All of time and space, the whole universe begins here. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to feel the weight of this. Are you feeling it? This is where everything begins. And I hope that as we study this, that you start to, uh, start to situate yourselves in this story. Your story doesn't begin with your conflict. Your story doesn't begin with your crisis. Your story does not begin with your suffering. Your story begins with in the beginning. So let's look and see how the story begins so that we can make sense of our stories. All right? So where do we start? We start in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The first thing that we recognize before we get into anything in Genesis and anything in our Bibles, it's the first four words in our Bible. In the beginning, God. It all starts with God. It all starts with God. Uh, the family and I, we were driving over here this morning, and we played an, an oldie but a goodie. And by oldie, I mean a song that I sang uh, a little bit after college. And um, I'm embracing it. I'm embracing it. I, I, I am now in the oldies generation. Uh, and it was a song by Chris Tomlin, who is old now. Get used to it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, he'll be doing PBS telethons, you know, shortly. Um, <laughs> and Chris Tomlin had a song that I remembered back, it's probably almost 20 years ago, called Uncreated One. Uncreated One. 
It's one of my favorite songs back in the day. And I was listening to it again and haven't heard it in several years. Uncreated One. What a title. Everything else in the universe is created. There is one uncreated one. And he's right here. In the beginning, God. Where did he come from? He didn't. There is no coming from. There's no source. He's eternal. There's no time where there was not God. Okay? God always is. He'll say that later on when you get into the, uh, the book of Exodus, when Moses is at the burning bush and he's confronted by the living God. And he says, okay, so you want me to go into Egypt and, and tell the, the Hebrew slaves uh, that, that I've come to rescue you and all of that. They're going to ask just randomly, what, what God are you talking about? What's his name? Of course, they live in a, uh, a, a polytheistic culture there in Egypt. There are all kinds of gods. And so we need to specify which God you're talking about. Who, who, who is it? What? I, but I don't know your name. So what's your name? And he says, I am who I am. The Lord Jesus in John 8 will pick up on that when he says, before Abraham was, I am. What is he saying? He's saying that this one, this one, you want to know what his name is? His name is present tense B. That's his name. Okay. His name is a, is a tense. <laughs> His name is a, is a verbal tense. I am. I'm not past tense. I, I'm not was, nor am I was not, you know, or anything like that. And, and I'm not uh, 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 will be eventually, but not is. No, I am. Uh, that's who I am am, right? I, I am always here. I have always been here. I always will be here. I am not like, for instance, our process theology neighbors would say, I am not uh, evolving and developing into some type of uh, uh, superior and, and, and more progressive godness. That's not who I am. Who I am now is who I was back then and who I always will be. I am. Okay, and, and, and unlike our uh, uh, postmodern relativistic world, I am not at your whim. Okay, I, I am not whatever you want me to be. That's not the God that we see here. This God is God before you were you. And this God will be God long after you are not here. This God is God, period. And all of existence revolves around him. We are who we are because he is who he is. We exist because of him. The air that we breathe is his air. The, the eyes that we see with are his eyes. The, 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 the world that we exist in is his world. It's all his. Think about how evolution would teach. Evolution would teach us that uh, God is, um, or that, that there is no God, and so therefore everything is just this mechanical 
uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just this you know, system of scientific laws and so on. Who made these laws? Nobody made these laws. They are just here. And everything is just here. And you are just here. And you exist. And the only explanation for your life is, is well, biology. That's the only reason that you're here. And, and, and why do I have the things that I have and experience the things that I have and struggle with the things that I have? Well, it's because you're the product of your environment. And it's all purely scientific. That's the explanation for everything. Think about the coldness of that kind of existence. Think about even just the sense of having a purpose in your life. How can you have a purpose in your life if there is no person to purpose it? Now, obviously, if that's the case, then you've got to figure it all out yourself. You got to live your own thing, create your own purpose, create your own destiny, choose your own adventure. But what is even the purpose of doing that? You're just lying to yourself. These are the kinds of conversations that philosophers have had for several uh, decades and several generations. What's the purpose of creating an existence for yourself if you're just lying to yourself when in reality there is no purpose to your existence? It's all just live and die, just get it over with as the nihilist would say. Think about the contrast with what we have here. In the beginning, God. A personal being. And all of the universe came from his mind. And all of the universe is heading where he will take it. He is the one in charge of all things. And as we know from the rest of Scripture, and especially as we will find in this, in this passage here, this God is not a capricious God. This God is not a maniacal God. This God is not a killjoy type of God. This is an infinitely loving and gracious and kind God who lives to bless his creatures. What a God. What a world. What a story. This is how it begins. It all begins with God. Well, we've made it four words into the Bible. So let's pick it up a little bit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? And notice it says at the end of verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in verse 3, you see God said... And so this leads us to our next point. It all begins with God. It's the first point. The second point is God created with his spirit and with his word. Now, if you read uh, some of the early church fathers, oh, they had fun with that part. That God created everything with his spirit and with his word. And they go, oh, wait, 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 hold on. So you're saying God and the spirit and the word created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, yeah. And they go, we get a Trinitarian reality embedded in the first couple verses of the Bible. Here is the spirit hovering over the waters. Here is God who is speaking with his word. And here is the word that goes to work in creating all of the heavens and the earth. They said, look at that. This is the kind of God that we serve. How did everybody miss this? Well, because we didn't know yet. 
right? It, it took further revelation to flesh all of this out. But, but here is a God who is working. Here is a particular kind of God who is working. A God who is revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. God, uh, obviously here, uh, uh, in the person of the Father, the Spirit, who is the one coming out from the Father, hovering over the face of the waters, and the Word, who would later be the incarnate Word, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, as John 1 would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him. Well, here is the Word of God doing His bidding in creating the world. This is what we see here. So let's see how he created this world. Well, first off, in verse 2, it it gets kind of weird. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Well, that's a weird way to create the world. Did did y'all hear that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth, the earth that he created, in verse 1, the earth was without form, and it was void or empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Picture this. What you see is this vast nothingness, all right, and it's dark. No stars in the sky. No, you have to make that. Uh, There's there's no sky. (laughs) He hasn't made that either, right? It's, it's just nothing except this ball of water that's suspended in the, in, in, the, in the space. That's all you have in verse 1. And verse 2 describes it. It was formless. Water has no form. It's just waves and sea and all of this. And it was, and it was empty. No grass, no trees, no flowers, no people, animals, all that. No. And it was dark. There's no light. Then you see who's on the move in verse, at the end of verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Just a little side note. You probably want to jot this down in your Bible somewhere. Whenever the Spirit is around, stuff's about to get real. Okay? It's about to get real. No, notice, when, when, uh, when the Lord is being baptized and the Spirit of God comes down from heaven. Oh, it's about to get real. Right. And his ministry is about to begin, and he's about to change the world, right? It begins with the Spirit. When, when the Lord ascends into heaven, he says, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they're sitting there in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they're just waiting, and then the Holy Spirit comes down on that room, and they start speaking in different languages, and the power of God is there as they're proclaiming his mighty deeds to all of the, the travelers that had come in for the holiday of Pentecost. And, and when the Spirit came down... It got real, right? Thousands of people came to faith that day. The Lord is on the move. The church has begun. Let's get going. The Spirit showed up. Here you have nothing. It's a big old ball of water. And then the Spirit shows up. He starts hovering over the face of the deep, the face of the waters. And God says, oh, this is amazing. There's nothing there. And God makes everything out of nothing. All he does is speak, and it happens. What kind of God is this? What kind of word is this? 
that is so powerful that when God says in verse 3, let there be light, whoosh, light, lights up the sky. How did that happen? Did he do some science experiment or something? No, he invented science. That's what happened. <laughs> let there be, and all of a sudden comes physics, right? Physics comes into existence, and light comes into existence, and all of these things come into existence. How did it happen? God said, be, and it happened. In the Hebrew, it's so funny. It, it, read there, let there be light, and in Hebrew, it, the word is exactly the same, and light bead. That's what it says, right? It, it just, it happened. Boom. How? His word. He speaks. Boy, this is good. Guess what? This world is formless. This world was empty. This world was dark. Why did God create the world that way? He created the world that way because he knows where this story is going. He knows that eventually we are going to start experiencing formlessness, right? We're going to start experiencing chaos. We're going to start experiencing things breaking down and the disintegration of things and the, the disforming, deforming of creation. And he says, I want to show you in the way I create everything that the God who forms is the God who also is able to reform. And the God who creates is also the God who's able to recreate. I am the one that is able to take messes and turn them into masterpieces. This is the God that we serve. And he's embedded it in his creation. I love that. Nature is not in conflict with what God is doing in the world. Nature is, is the supporting cast. Telling us, echoing, yeah, this God, look what he can do. Yeah. So what does he do as he makes everything out of nothing? Well, first he lights up the darkness. Let there be light. And there was light. He saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. By the way, notice separation and distinctions and all of these things are a part of God's creation. God loves categories. And God loves making distinctions and so on so that you can know the difference between one and the other. He makes distinctions here between light and darkness. That's going to have amazing implications for the rest of the Bible. And he calls the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. There was day one. God lights up the darkness. If you are living in darkness, please understand that the God who said, let there be light here on day one is a God that can say, let there be light today. That's how powerful his word is. Not only that, but he forms the unformed. And that's really the rest of days one, two, and three. He, he starts with the sky. He takes the waters. Remember, it's a big ball of water. He says, let there be an expanse. Let there be this space that separates the waters from the waters. So there's this space, this kind of vacuum of space here. And above it are waters. And below it are waters. The waters that are below is what's left of the earth. He's going to get back to making that in just a bit. But there's this, this canopy of water that seems to exist above the sky. That's going to come in into play when you get into Genesis 6 with the flood. Because where did all that water come from? Well, this was the water that God has separated. And now it's kind of creating this, this rainforest type of uh, uh, um, ecology and so on. Perfect ideal temperatures and everything and climate for growth and all of that. And then you have the flood and all those waters come down. What you see in the flood, in essence, is the uncreating of creation. 
Did you all get that? It's the uncreating. God's turn, he's dialing it back, pressing rewind, going all the way back to what we had in verse 2 as he destroys the earth in his judgment. So you have this separation here of the, of the, of the waters from the waters. And that in the middle, that little space there, he calls sky. All right? It says heaven here in your scriptures, but it's sky. And so you have that water there. And then he takes the waters and he says, let's gather these waters below. Let's gather them uh, uh, into one place and so that we have dry land that'll show up and all of that. And he calls that dry land earth, ground, right? And, and, and the waters he calls seas. And so now we're starting to see the earth become what we know it's going to be. And then he says, now let that earth that I just brought out, let's, let's sprout vegetation in verse 11. Let's have plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit with its seeds and all of that. And it starts doing so in verse 12, vegetation, plants, and all of these things, trees bearing fruit, each according to its kind. Oh, that's amazing. Verse 14, God now goes from forming the unformed to now filling what was empty. Now he takes this world that he has made and he starts to fill it up. Let there be lights in the sky, taking the lights and separating them into, into stars and all of that. And he says here, there to be one light in verse uh, 15 to rule the day and one light to rule the night. Let's have a little pop quiz. What's the greater light to rule the day? The sun. And what's the lesser light to rule the night? The moon. And so notice he uses uh, uh, rulership, reigning terms for these lights. The sun rules the day. The, the moon rules the night. And he's, he's laying out, if you will, a bit of a hierarchy, an organizational flowchart, if you will, for, the, for space. And you have all of that there. And then uh, God sets them in there, as he says in verse 17, uh, to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. So now they are in charge of making sure that it's light in the daytime and night in the nighttime and all of that there. And then he lets the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. We, we, um, uh, we watched uh, Jaws just recently. And... Uh, he had traumatized the kids. It was great. Um, but, but, you know, all of this, the, the sharks, you know, think we're going to need a bigger boat, you know, and all the stuff that's there and, and just the, the, the havoc and all of that. All of that's post-fall, okay? But all of these creatures were there. The, it, the, the waters fill up with guppies and tuna and salmon and orcas and, 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 and great whites and makos and all of these creatures that are now filling up the earth, uh, or filling up the waters. He did that. He also then fills the, uh, uh, the, the earth, as you see there in verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the, of the earth according to their kinds. Yeah, so all of your livestock and big beasts, uh, uh, lions and, and giraffes and bears and all of these, insects, mosquitoes, I don't know why, but he did, and, and ticks and, and all of that, and even the little ants and the little ladybugs and all these, he created all of them. Look at how wildly creative your God is. That the same God who created Alpha Centauri also created the duck-billed platypus. It's the same mind that did this. The same mind that gave us Jupiter 
also gave us redheads. You know, and I mean, that's that's awesome. How does he do that? I don't know. You know, he, he invented gravity. And yet he also invented zero gravity, knowing that one day we would figure out how to, how to uh, defy the, the boundaries of, of gravity and get up into space. And we'd be floating all over the place thinking this is the most awesome thing in the world. Think about when you watch these science shows and stuff and they, they, they recognize, they discover a, a, a new um, a fish in the sea or, or all of these things. They've been there. They've been there. What are they doing down there? They are just delighting the heart of the Father. That's what they're doing. And he goes, great, I was wondering when you were going to show up. Yeah, look at this. Isn't this amazing? I did that. Yeah, God is having a blast making his creation. This is his world. He lights up the darkness. He forms the unformed. He fills the empty. God made everything out of nothing. Oh, the power of our God. But that's not all. After he had done all of these things, then he sets up a hierarchy in the earth. He says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds and the heavens and the, uh, the, the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. By the way, ladies, that means snakes, spiders, all of that. You have dominion over these things. What are you doing? You, you take dominion. It's okay. Yeah. But anyways, he says uh, all of these things. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice there is one that uh, this, this creature these creatures that he created in his image. He doesn't say that about any other creatures. It's only these creatures, these particular creatures called humans that he makes in his image. Note, we are not the image of God. There is one who is the image of God. We find that in Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. But we were made in the image of God, which means that there's something about us that is meant to resemble the image of God, namely Christ himself, which is why there's dignity and value to every single human life. Every single one of our lives matter. Every single one of us is born with dignity on us because we have the image of God bearing on us, right? We, we, we are meant and created to resemble him and his likeness and, and we are to be like him in the earth. We are to represent him in the earth. God made every single one of us that way. And notice that that is not uh, limited to any one particular gender of us, but rather it says male and female, he created them. So when he created man in his own image, he created male and female in his own image, which means every single one of us, male and female, every single human in here bears the image of God. So when we think of all the atrocities of, of human history, and even atrocities just in the last century or so, you think of all the ones that have died and think of how many of them have died because of some cause or some ideology that did not begin here. Take away your humanity. Take away the image of God. Take away your dignity. And you're expendable. Any of us can go at the whim of whoever holds the most power. But if there is a creator, 
and we have been created in his image, then he has stamped every single one of us with inherent value. And every life then matters. He made us. He says that he made us to, uh, to rule over the earth. We are the ones who are meant to organize and to steward his creation. He blesses us in verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What does that mean? That means make lots of babies. That's what it means. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Note, that's his blessing on humanity. Hey, go, have fun, knock yourselves out. Have a great time. And as you're doing so, you are multiplying image bearers. And as you're multiplying image bearers, the idea is with more humans on the earth, there is the extending of God's rule over all of the earth. That's how it was supposed to work, right? That was the created purpose, the created end of it all. What went wrong? That would be next week's message. Okay. But notice here, this is good. It's a good thing to see us all over. It's a good thing to see what God is doing. Note, he blesses him even further. He says, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth. In verse 29, every tree with seed in its fruit, you'll have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. I'm blessing my creation. This is the God that we serve. Is a God who wants to bless his creation. He did not create all of creation and say, good, now you must die. That's not the God that we serve. He creates all of this creation and he says, great, now enjoy. Is that your God? Is that your God? Who creates all of this for the joy of his creatures? Do you know this joy? Are you living in it? Maybe you should ask, where is the despair coming from? Where, where is this here coming from? Why am I not experiencing this joy? Or even as he goes on, after making everything that he made, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, when the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, and on the seventh day he finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. He blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He rests. Creation does not culminate in the creating of man and woman. I know that may hurt, your, hurt our, our egos a little bit, but that's not the culmination of creation. The culmination of creation is Sabbath. Creation culminates with God designating a day for rest. The work is over. I've done what I needed to do. And now I can rest and enjoy the works that I have made. Yeah. The culmination of history is not just in the restoring of man and woman. It is not just the redemption of our souls and so on. Remember in Romans 8, all creation is groaning for that redemption. The redemption of the sons of God. Why are they groaning for that redemption? Because it is only in the redemption that the ultimate end of it all will occur. And that is Sabbath. That we will enjoy the rest of our God 
forever. The day is coming. The day is coming. He's already embedded it in his creation. Real quickly in chapter 2, he tells a story in a little bit different way. I won't spend as much time on this, uh, but I do want to highlight some things just to show you that not only uh, is God the one who created everything with his spirit and with his word, but God is also the one who sustains, in particular, human life. That's really the focus of chapter 2. God is working not just on the large scale for all of his creatures and, and, and working for the joy and the delight and the blessing of all of his, crea- of his creation. By the way, I didn't even highlight this, but uh, just for sake of time, I'll just have to say it briefly. Notice in chapter 1 how many times God says, good. God saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then at the end of chapter one, he saw that it was very good. This is all good. He's working for the good of his creation. But then in chapter two, you see that now he's going to zero in on people in particular, humans in particular. And how does he work for their good and sustaining their lives? Well, first thing, he gives them a soul. You see in verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, uh, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. That's a precursor. And there was no man to work the ground. That would be another precursor. He's forewarning us that things are about to go off the rails. Okay, Both of those were judgments on the creation. He says that but that judgment hadn't come yet. In verse 6, a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became, in Hebrew, a living soul. A living soul. God gives us souls. We are not just natural uh, 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 chemicals and tissue and matter and all of that. There's more to us. We have the very breath of God in us. Every single one of us is breathing borrowed air. God is the one that is sustaining your lives. God is the one that is giving you life. And this soul that we possess will one day be separated from our bodies in death. And we will have to deal with that reality. But but God is the one who takes this clump of dirt from the ground. That would be you and that would be me. And he breathes life into it so that we are more than just matter. We are souls. God is the one who does that. God then puts us in a home in verse 8. It says, the Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man where he had formed. Don't skip over this. God gives us locations. He gives us places. You know what it's like, some of you, to be displaced, right? You know what it feels like when you're not at home. You know what it feels like when you're kind of sticking out right? In a a crowd. And and you may have that longing to be in a place where you are home, in a place where you belong, like the old cheer song. Sometimes you got to go where everybody knows your name. And and you want to have that place of home, that feeling of belonging. Well, notice that God is the one who created that. He makes a garden and he puts the man in the garden and he says, here is where I want you to live. Here is where you belong. Yeah. And then notice he puts them there and then he gives them responsibilities. He's got a job. Uh, you see there um, 
So before you get the when you get to the job, notice how he provides for them. He says, uh, "In the out of the ground, the Lord God had made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Hold that thought. Uh, that will come back uh, a little bit later in the story. There was a river that went through and watered the garden, and he talks about this river in verses nine through thirteen. Uh, I'm sorry, verses ten through thirteen. And then it says that the Lord put him in the uh, uh, in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to work and to keep. I mean, put him in the garden as a place where he could work, which is a very ambiguous term. It could also mean to worship. Uh, it could also mean to serve and, and so on. There are many that have picked up that this is a priestly term. It's what the, what the priests were to do in the temple. They were to serve the temple. They were to worship the Lord in the temple, serving him in the temple. And that's what Adam was called to do in the garden. Also, he was called to keep the garden. He was called to keep or to guard in there, to protect in the uh, garden as well. Uh, other priestly services, they are to protect uh, uh, the worship of God and protect his order and so on in uh, the temple. And, and so uh, there's a very real sense in which in chapter one, he's called to rule over the earth. And then in chapter two, he's called to serve in priestly ways. We get the beginning of the categories of a kingdom of priests, which will come into handy, uh, 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 come into, uh, into view a lot clearer when we get into Exodus 19 and all the way into the rest of the scriptures. God is designating a people who will mediate his rule over the earth, but also will serve as his representatives, as his priests over all of the earth as well. God has always been after a people who will do that, even to this day, as 1 Peter 2 will say, you are a royal priesthood. We believers are now the ones through whom God rules and, and, and lays out his priestly responsibilities and so on. We are his representatives here on this earth. That's an awesome thing. There are so many things that are going on in here that we have no time to, to lay out, but, it's, but you see the categories beginning to form in here. God also then gives him boundaries in verses 16 and 17. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Note, the command does not begin with don't. The command begins with a blessing. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Note what he's saying here. You can eat of every tree. Notice the Lord is not focusing on the one tree in the garden that he can't eat. He focuses on all of the others. Isn't that how sin works with us? Look at all that God has blessed us with. We in our sinful hearts focus on the one thing God says don't, right? Little kid who has a whole room full of toys, who has parents who love them and all of these different things. But as soon as mom says, don't touch the cookies, delete all, right? Nothing else exists except the cookie. I'm going to touch that cookie and I'm going to eat a cookie. You know, why? You have all of this to enjoy. The problem isn't that you're unloved. You are incredibly loved. The problem isn't the lover. The problem is our own sinful hearts. All the trees of the garden, you, they're yours. They're already yours. Eat them. Enjoy. 
you know, mix and match. Veggies, fruits, everything. Have fun. Just don't eat from the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. So he gives them boundaries. Note, it's good that God gives us boundaries. It's good that God protects us. It's good that God gives commands. They're not because he's mean. They're because he wants you to live. See, All of this is about his sustaining our lives. And then, culminating in all of this, he gives, he gives the man a helper. <laughs> in verse 18, after all the good of chapter 1, good, 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 very good. You get to verse 18 and he says, that's not good. What's not good? He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, some of the college uh, kids are here and, and some of them have been in my Old Testament survey and they know that when I get to this passage in Genesis, I have all the ladies uh, turn to look at the men. So ladies, I want you all to turn and look at the men that are here. And, and I want you to, to say this. I want you to say, uh, there are two genders in the Bible. Go ahead, say it. There, there are two genders in the Bible. And one of them needs help. <laughs> it, it's, it's in my Bible. Uh, it's, I didn't, it's right here. You know. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. All right. Bruh needs help. All right. And so let, let, me, let me help this brother out. And so, so it says out of the, the ground, he formed all the beasts of, of, the, of, the, of the fields and the birds and everything. And he gives the man as part of his responsibility, stewarding creation. He says, I want you in here and I want you to name all of these creatures. And so he's looking. Duck, you know, uh, bear, cow, bull, uh, dog, dog. Dog, there are a lot of dogs, and uh, you know, cats. Why are they here? And and he's just looking at all of these different creatures here, and then and then he's noticing something as he goes on. It says in verse twenty, he gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So he's looking, and he goes, rooster, chicken, huh, huh, bull, cow. They're kind of, but they're, hmm, okay. Me, good, go to sleep. So that's what he does. He calls him, verse 21, a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Man wakes up. Whoa, man. No, no, that's not how we got the word, but, but, but he sees, he sees her. And, and, and I love to say he breaks out into Etta James long before Etta James, there was Adam. Look at verse 23. The man says, at last, my love has come along, right? At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She shall be called be male because she was taken out of male. She's like me, but she's not like me. And 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 yet she was where we belong together. And that's why Moses says in verses 24 and 25, therefore, 
Therefore, on the basis of that, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this, this oneness that's here between the man and the woman and all that, because of that, a man shall leave his father and mother. Notice they set the pattern, father and mother teaching him and all of that. He gets up to it and he becomes of age and everything and he leaves that home and he takes a wife, holds fast to his wife. He clings to her. He's, he's holding on for dear life. That's <laughs> looking at her and just saying, I need you. I can't live without you. That's why he's holding fast to her, right? And it says that the two shall become one flesh. There is a, a dynamic of that that is, that is quite obvious, the physical nature of that, consummating their marriage and in intimacy and so on. But there's also this sense in which God knits us together. Some of y'all know that very well. Years and years of marriage, and you find yourself just knowing the person, right? You know what the person's going to say before the person even says it. There have been times where Annie will just look at me, and I'll just go, Okay, you know, and <laughs> where did that come from? We have been so fused together that it's like we are one. And that's exactly what God wants for us. It's why also when you see the curse and you see just how that one flesh disintegrates, just how painful that is. And even the ultimate uh, uh, pain and the ultimate separation of death. And how you have, you know how there are many where they have lost a loved one. And having lost a loved one, they, they just say, I don't even know how to go on anymore. And how many, especially elderly, when one passes away, that the other one is not very long before they pass away too. Because a part of them has gone. They have been so knit together. But this is beautiful. God is establishing marriage, and from the marriage, he establishes family, and from family, children, and the, the raising up, and the sustaining, and the uh, cultivating, and discipling of more children, and more generations, and so on. This is God's world. And as we see so far, it is lovely. I hope you recognize a couple of things. One, I hope you recognize just how awesome of a God we have. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from the Father. It comes from a God who loves his creatures, who delights in them and magnifies his name for the good of his creation. That's our God. I hope you also are starting to recognize just how much sin has wrecked this world. So far, we haven't made it to the bad news. But we know it very well, don't we? We see the beauty of the original design of creation and we see how it has been marred and twisted in our world. But I hope that you also see in here just how awesome our Savior is. He does not just take us back to this. No. The goal is, of the story is not to go back. The goal of the story is to go forward. All that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is beautiful. But it's just scratching the surface of all that God is up to and all that he is taking us in the end of days. If you read Revelation 21 and 22 and you recognize that it is very resemblant, uh, it very much resembles Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and yet its themes 
Like we tend, like we almost want to forget about Genesis 21 or Genesis 1 and 2, having looked at Revelation 21 and 22, because the new creation, the new Jerusalem that comes down to the earth, when we see it in all of its spectacular glory and dazzling array, we realize that this in the beginning was just a trailer for this that is to come. Our Lord is making all things new. He's shown us what he can do in Genesis 1 and 2. And he's promising that he's going to do even better in Revelation 21 and 22. This is the beginning of the story. This is the beginning of our story. We begin with God. And we see his good creation. And we marvel at how he has made this world. And its wisdom and design. An incredible blessing. Do you know this God? Do you know him? Is he the one ruling and reigning over your life? Is he the one who can make all things new in you? This is the story. Where do you fit in his story? Let's pray. So Father, we ask that you would indeed help us to marvel As you speak to us through the scriptures, tell us of this marvelous true story. But also as you speak through creation, as you have ordered and organized and structured all things, speaking them into existence, Lord, you have filled us with so much, uh, so much revelation of who you are. You are the eternal one. You are the mighty one. You are the one ruling over all of creation. You are the one working all things uh, by your powerful word. You are the one who is creating things with such wisdom and skill. As Proverbs 8 would say, it was by wisdom that you created all things. Uh, Lord, you, you are showing us so much in this. And you are inviting us as humans to enjoy, to join you in your joy. Father, I know that for many of us, that's not the world that we live in. Joys seem to be few and far between for so many. Father, I pray that you would indeed help us to see. Help us, Lord, to recognize that you are the one who created, and yet you are also the one who is able to re create. And for this, Lord, I thank you. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who through his own finished work on the cross made all of the promises, yes and amen, in him. So that as we look back and see the way that things were, and we look to, to where we are now and see, as they, uh, see things as they are, Lord, we're able to look forward to see what they will be because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for not just being our creator, but our re-creator.